2: Hello everybody and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. I'm Kurt Heelan, the managing editor of the NBA page at NBC with you today and a little bit of a deviation from our preseason package we've been doing a little of talking about and there's a lot more of this coming. What, uh, what to expect this season, MVP predictions, our predictions for the season and looking at uh, you know coaches on the hot seat and all of it. Today we're actually taking a diversion to talk about uh, a coach not on the hot seat in Steve Kerr in Golden State. Scott Howard Cooper, one of my uh, favorite people from the NBA writing business, has has finished a book on Kerr called Steve Kerr A Life uh, that delves into everything from his uh, very interesting and eclectic youth to his uh, college time at Arizona, his uh, NBA career, which was, you know, is a solid... I mean, we think now of the five championships in the 15 years in the league, but that was not easy for him to stick around. He wasn't expected to. Um, and obviously, on his coaching career. We're going to delve into all of it. It's a fascinating conversation and a fascinating book. And uh, well, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll be back later this week, of course, with a lot more <laughs> season previews. But for now, let's welcome in Scott Howard Cooper and talk a little Steve Kerr. How are you doing, Scott Howard Cooper? It's good to talk to you, man. Thanks Kurt. Always good to connect. How are you? I am doing well. I'm doing well and we kind of bring you in at a fortuitous time. The Warriors are back in the news, kind of back on the the we will get into this a little more. They're they're down the line, but they're coming This is the season where there's a potential comeback for them. But Steve Kerr's kind of in the news right now as a guy who's a front runner for the Team USA coaching job with Greg Popovich. Out. I know Mark Stein had reported this, but you had actually talked about this like a month ago. I guess it's in the book.
0: Yeah, that's certainly not new information by any means. It's in the book. We we talk about that a little bit. His path to becoming an assistant coach, uh, the how the sort of behind the scenes on the selection process and how things look coming out of the Olympics and moving forward. That whenever uh, it's time to name Greg Popovich's successor, there's no question that Steve Kerr is the front runner. Uh, they like Jay Wright at USA Basketball. They like Jay Wright, the Villanova coach an awful lot. But Steve has an advantage. He's got a really good relationship with Grant Hill. He's got the credibility with the players. He's got the experience. Uh, and I, I, every indication is that they're still going to go in the NBA direction, not the, not the Jay Wright NCAA Uh, direction so at that point it probably comes down to Kerr and uh, Spolstra and Steve wins easily this is something that's that's been out there for a while it's it's discussed in the book and I had it on Twitter so it's it's something that I think is a pretty obvious selection when the time comes
2: yeah the only other NBA name I had heard is is Monty Williams was intriguing them but you know he doesn't have the international assistant coaching experience that that Steve does
0: USA Basketball likes to put a premium on on people who have been in the program for a while on loyalty, and that's that's with players as well as coaches. And that gives Steve uh, a big advantage over Monty, uh, over Spolstra. Uh, you really have to search hard to come up with a reason that it wouldn't be Steve. And I don't, I, I can't find one. I it would be a shocking development uh, unless he changes his mind for whatever reason.
2: Uh, if it's not Steve. Uh, and it, one thing that's been interesting in his coaching career, and you kind of touch on this a lot in the book, um, and it's something I tried to get Grant Hill to talk about a little last week and in, a, in our podcast with him, but he, I don't want to say dodged it, but he lumped it in with other things, which is Steve Kerr brings to the table this, he gets along with players, as a player, but he gets along with kind of everyone. He gets along with Draymond Green. He gets along, oh, I guess with Kevin Durant, although well, that one maybe is a little more tenuous now. Um, but he gets along with a variety of players, and you kind of need somebody at USA Basketball who guys want to play for, who want to play with. He's, he's kind of got to have that connection, and Kirk kind of brings that to the table.
0: There's no question that it's a unique role. Um, players don't have to be there it's not like their nba season that if you don't get along with the coach you got to put up with it um as we've seen for many olympic cycles now world championship cycles guys are just gonna bail
2: yeah
0: (laughs) and if there's a coach there that has a bad reputation that people have had a lot of bad experiences with i think you're going to that that's one of the things that USA basketball is very conscious of is that there's got to be somebody that people want to give up part of their summer, uh, to come play with play for. And, uh, Steve certainly fits that bill. He's one of the most popular people in the NBA of the last 25 or 30 years. And that's coaches, players as a teammate for many years when he was a GM. Uh, and obviously as a broadcaster, uh, his personality is one of the best things that Steve has going for himself.
2: So you finished the book uh, a while ago, actually I'm like, uh, we had kind of discussed off air. It's, it's a book that like many things kind of got tied up in COVID and pushed back a little bit, but you started this book a while ago as the Warriors era was coming. I don't want to say era was coming to an end, but the, the run of five championships had kind of come to an end. Uh, was the book you envisioned writing the one you ended up, ended up with?
0: You mean at the very start, or once I switched to Steve Kerr?
2: What well, was? Uh, yeah, I guess. How did this project come about then?
0: Because because it it is a little bit of a swerving path, not not a huge one, but a little bit. Uh, had originally started out uh going to do something a big picture look on the warriors the rise of golden state this team that had been fun to watch for many years but never was going to be a threat for a championship uh they'd become lottery regulars and and floundering in all sorts of different ways and then all of a sudden they're winning championships every year and that put together the majority of a proposal and a a sample chapter and put things together on the ro- rise of the warriors and uh it was just a matter of the golden state was going to beat toronto in the finals and then we were my agent and i were going to go ahead and sell that book well apparently Kawhi leonard didn't like that idea and the injury <laughs> gods didn't like that idea because once the raptors in fact beat the warriors not the way a lot of people envisioned it would what would have been the wrong time to try to sell something on the success of the warriors right after they had lost in the finals and uh, my agent encouraged me to look at steve kerr story as a standalone and at first i was not thrilled with the idea and he encouraged me said you know what just just write a, a few paragraphs sit down for a week and do some research dig into it a little bit and he was 100 percent right and in pretty short order i went from thinking yeah okay i'll do this to okay this is this is gonna work there's there's enough there to i looked up suddenly and was telling myself i can't believe nobody has done this yet uh, there's just so much there to his life and that was really the selling point it's not steve kerr uh, the basketball coach and basketball player with a unique career path it's that this guy had such a fascinating life that you can write a story and obviously include Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich and Steph Curry, all of the expected. But you're in there talking about Kim Jong-un and Steve Kerr in the Oval Office with President Reagan and Vice President Bush. Uh, you, you, there's a direct connection to Yasser Arafat that's in there. 9-11, Pearl Harbor. Uh It's a little bit of a forest gum quality almost that uh, this, this guy's life has been touched in so many different ways by unique happenings in the world that it goes well beyond a typical sports book. And that's one of the things that really appealed to me.
2: Yeah, and that's one of the things that's interesting about reading this. You don't... dwell on like a lot of um biographies have uh, sports biographies have done which is dwell on the game moments as much It's not that you ignore b- big games or or don't talk about them but this is much more personality driven than we're gonna you're, you you don't spend five pages on a game
0: you're right and that was on purpose um there's a couple moments that we zero in on obviously the biggest of his playing career was game six with the bulls to win the championship when he hits the shot Uh, he had a big moment in the uh, western conference finals as a member of the spurs Uh, he had a disastrous moment when he was at university of arizona the final four uh, against oklahoma in kansas city And so there are some of those moments that we do do a deep dive and spend a a few different pages. Uh, I think on his shot to beat the Jazz in the 1997 finals, we maybe do, gosh, a thousand words just on that one shot alone. So there are those basketball moments, but it it is not by any means a book that you're going to see loaded with statistics. It is not an X's and O's coaching book where it talks about, uh, you know, why he ran this play in that moment or anything. It is, it is personality-driven. Uh, it's, as I said, it's about a unique career, but a fascinating life that goes well beyond uh, what he did on the court.
2: And I think he's fascinating in the sense that, uh, on, on, a, on a few levels, but one of the things that clearly comes through in the book is, look, on the surface, those of you obviously have interviewed him and been around him um, a lot over the years, um, I've certainly been in the room and, and spoken with him at, on and off the record at USA Basketball in here, and like on the surface, he is he is a very funny guy. He is he is easy to talk to. He is self deprecating. There's a lot of humor there. But the more you're around him, the more you realize he is a really driven, fiery competitor. Under that, that that kind of underscores how he got where he is.
0: And I think that that's one of something that has really come out in his Golden State years because uh, he's been caught on camera slamming a clipboard. Yeah. You know, he will break things. He will get angry at people. And I think uh, most people didn't realize that about him for many years, probably most, if not all, of his playing career. He played 15 years. And I think, oh, yeah, you know, nice guy, funny, smart, works really hard uh but just kind of this uh, it started when he was young he would be at university of arizona and there was a lot of howdy doody and opie and mr goody two-shoes you know he's just sort of this this blonde haired surfer dude looking kid from pacific palisades california and nobody ever really saw that fire very often uh, we bring it out. I think at different moments. There's some times where he got in a fight on the court. There's obviously the very famous run-in he had with Michael Jordan uh, that ended <laughs> that ended very badly for Steve on the uh, you know physically because he ended up with a black eye and Michael kicked his butt in about 10 seconds but worked out very well for Steve emotionally and career-wise because he kind of earned Michael's respect that way in a way that never would have happened otherwise. He stood up to Michael Jordan, and that's something that really scored points with Michael. So, yeah, he is much more intense than most people realize.
2: Yeah, I would say, I think a lot of fans, younger fans, they didn't know that much about him, and The Last Dance kind of changed some of that, right? Like, suddenly he's this character in The Last Dance who's, right the guy who stands up to jordan and gets punched but by the end is the the trusted teammate right the guy jordan will pass the ball to at the end of game 6 of a finals and trust him to knock down that shot uh that's a it's a long path to being that guy though for for Kerr who's i mean if we're going to go back to this he barely landed a scholarship out of college to a major. I mean, he ended up with Lou Olsen and this powerhouse at Arizona, but barely. Well,
0: that's one of the reasons we, we called it Steve Kerr, a life because we wanted to take readers all the way through and not just make it about coaching the warriors or even yeah. as a player. But even before that, from his youth growing up, uh, he gets to high school and you're right. He, he's nobody that you talked about a guy that had a 15year Nba career I bet there's a lot of people in Los Angeles who couldn't even tell you what high school he went to yeah it's it's not like he was one of the uh, the latest off the assembly line of Southern California no he, basketball he is he stars. is
2: he's not the uh, Shea cotton the the guys who have been hyped out of as, as somebody who's lived in Southern California and and gone to high school he was like he I mean, granted, that was a long time ago, but he was way under the radar.
0: Well, uh, yeah, I don't even know if he could have found the radar. He, <laughs> he, he had no business being at Arizona, and that was even on a really bad Arizona program. Uh, they had gone 4-24 and the year before. Lute Olson was brought in and is trying for Kevin Johnson and Reggie Miller, uh, loses out on both. And Steve had already graduated high school, and he still didn't have a college home. And he ends up playing in one of the summer league tournaments at Cal State Long Beach. And Lute is there scouting people for the next recruiting class. And he's got one scholarship to give. And he looks out there, he says, ah, who's that guy? You know, Has no idea who he is. That that tells you everything about Steve Kirk, that the coaches had no idea who he was. Uh, You know, smart player, can hit a shot, looks like he can run an offense. Uh, Everybody's going to go past him on defense. But you know what? I've got one scholarship to give, and uh, he, he checks the guy out. And Steve is, you know, they tell Steve that we can't give you a visit. We're out of visits, and it's late. It's June. It's July. It's getting late into summer. And Steve's like, I don't care, I'll take it, I'm coming. He almost ended up at Cal State Fullerton, but finally, uh, through a series of miscommunications, uh, but finally ended up at Arizona, and it turned out to be really where his life changed. Uh, Not only basketball-wise, it's where he made his future NBA career, it's where he made his name nationally, he met his future wife, Uh, He met a lot of people who to this day remain his closest friends. So uh, when we say he had no business being in Arizona, being at the Pac-10 at the time, now the Pac-12, but being in the Pac-10, he's the first one to admit that. This is a guy that uh, has constantly turned bad into good and has overcome these sort of basketball setbacks. Uh, He had no business being recruited to the Pac-10. Uh, oops, number 50 pick in the draft, and he ends up playing 15 years. It's just one thing after another that when we talk about Steve Kerr life, it, it's about that backstory that is so amazing.
2: And the thing that comes through is he genuinely values the positives in his life. I mean, he he, he really uh, appreci- both appreciates it and, and understands it, but values not just the positives in terms of what happened with him you know, getting to go to Arizona stuff, but the relationships that he builds. He, he takes this stuff very seriously.
0: Oh, he gets it. He knows how lucky he is. Uh, that's there, There's a, a, a lot of positives about Steve and his personality, but I think that you hit on the right word when you said appreciative. Uh, he knows how fortunate he has been in all aspects of his life, certainly professionally. Again, uh, the guy that never thought he could play at a a big school in college, Uh, the guy who never thought until his senior year of college that he would play in the NBA. And then when he did start to get that sense, once he was having a really good senior year, he said, maybe if, if things break just right, maybe I can get a year or two of the NBA and then I'll go into coaching, maybe into athletic director, athletic administration, but probably coaching. Uh, That was his career path was, was to squeeze a year out of the NBA and then ends up playing 15 and he gets it. Uh, This is not an ego run, run amok where he was like, I got this. And you know, people talk about, you got to believe and everything he didn't believe his lack of confidence was a problem the entire time. I would also make the case that it, more than lack of confidence, it was the right amount of being realistic uh, because he was not alone in thinking he couldn't play. <laughs> so, there were plenty of college coaches that, again, didn't recognize him. Uh, he lived when he was at uh, going to Palisades High School. Uh, that's a, what, 10, 15-minute drive, depending on traffic, to UCLA. Yeah, And he, he, his dad was in the uh, political science department at UCLA for 20 years. He couldn't get the Bruins to let him yeah. on campus. They wouldn't even give him a visit. Uh, this guy that ends up playing 15 years in the NBA and lived practically down the street. Uh, so it, he's appreciative. He gets it. He knows that this thing has worked out a million times better than it had a right to.
2: Uh, speaking of his father, that obviously is one of the big uh, turning points in his career. And I think something a few people do know about, because it, it does come up when, th- through Steve Kerr's, you know, if, even for casual fans, talking a little bit. His father, Dr. Malcolm Kerr, was at UCLA, but then took the job as president of the American University in Beirut, Beirut uh, and was assassinated while Kerr was at the University of Arizona. And I can't imagine how you overcome that and come back to playing basketball.
0: It speaks to his resiliency because I think that I certainly share that, that same feeling. I think most other people would, he's a college freshman. Uh, It's January of 1984. He's been in town a few months. It's not like he knew people that well. He knew he got his buddies from the team and maybe some other people from, from the dorm, but it's not like he had been in Tucson uh, as a junior or a senior, that he knew a lot of people there. He, it's not like he was someplace close to Los Angeles that he could that he could go home at night if he needed to. Again, he originally considered Cal State Fullerton uh, before going to Arizona, and so that would have been a different a different opportunity. You're you're, you're much closer to your support base. As it turns out, he's in Tucson, and there's no family. Uh, his immediate family is either back East uh, in terms of his grandparents or aunts and uncles. Uh, he's got, he's got a set of grandparents uh, in Southern California, but his mom and his siblings are in the middle East when this happens. And Steve has to sort of figure all this out on his own uh, with nobody to rely on. And the teammates stepped up and Lou Olson and his wife and the assistant coaches all stepped up, but still He's a college freshman, far from home and trying to figure out how to sort this through because he and his dad had a very good relationship. They were close. This was was the loss of a parent and a friend at the same time, uh, somebody that he loved dearly and relied on. And the one thing he knew pretty quick was that he's going to stay with the team. And not go to the Middle East for the services, to be with his family in the church. And Lu says, "Well, at least take some time. Just go somewhere, get away from basketball. take care of yourself. That matters. Basketball doesn't. And Steve was adamant. He said, "I need to be around basketball. I need to be around this team." I can't go someplace and just sit and stare at the walls for 24 hours a day, even if it is with my loving family. Uh, so he stayed. He stayed and played basketball. And two days later, turns into an amazing performance against Arizona State that people in Tucson are still talking about.
2: There were so many great stories I had not heard about Steve um, through this. But the one that kind of stunned me was the senior year at Arizona State where you know he's a senior guard at this point. Like you said, he's starting to be known around uh, around a little bit, and rival Arizona State fans taunted him about the assassination of his father. And again, I think this—you mentioned the word resilient. He bounces back. He dropped. He's almost in tears, but he, he bounces back and drops. I think it was twenty-two on them.
0: No, he was. He was in tears. Yeah, he he. <laughs> that's another thing about Steve is what you see is what you get. He doesn't hide it. Um, He was in tears the night that when I talked about the first game back after losing his father uh, on the court before the game, he was in tears Um, and doesn't care, doesn't care that people can see this same thing. It's a senior year in Tempe at Arizona State this time. And it wasn't all the ASU fans. It was about, I think they said, 12, maybe 15. It was a small group, but it's before the game. The team is not drawing well, so it's it's almost like an echo chamber. If somebody is yelling something on one side of the arena, people on the other side
2: can hear it. So it's old Clipper and games. Okay.
0: I was going to say, and this is the definition of disgusting. Um that, that these people are chanting PLO Ugh. and Beirut and they're just yelling at Steve about the assassination of his father by terrorists. And it was just awful. And he drops the ball, He's, you know, pregame shooting, drops the ball, goes over to the bench and is in tears and just sitting there. And some of his teammates are about ready to go up into the stands to take these people on. And thankfully, there were enough people there with a heart and soul beyond, you know, just fans, people who didn't know him, that would come by and give him a pat on the shoulder and, you know, this is not us, this is not, these are not our fans, who we want to be. There were enough decent people there, but that, (laughs) oh my God, What, what a horrible night, horrible
2: uh, he had another rough situation since we're, while we're at Arizona. I mean, he had a knee injury that people bounce back from today, but back in 1986, he almost his a knee injury almost ended his career.
0: It's the summer after his junior season. He's playing for Team USA in the World Championships in Spain and he sort of gets caught in the air twisting between can I make a pass to Charles Smith off to the side or should I take the shot and gets caught in the air and lands awkwardly and blows out his knee and that very night before he'd even left the arena before he'd gone taken a single x-ray gone, not even on the team bus the doctor the team USA doctor says your career is probably over
2: <laughs> oh my Jeez. God.
0: Oh, my God. And this is a guy for whom basketball was much more than a sport or an opportunity or a college scholarship. Remember, he used basketball to try to get him through the loss of his father. That's how much basketball meant to him. And here he is after his junior year uh, being told that his career is probably over. And he's on the bus and he's in tears. And uh, he goes back to his hotel room and is on the phone with his mom in los angeles he's in madrid calling his mom in los angeles in tears my career is probably over this is horrible and everything uh that's how bad it was um but this was uh, this was also one of the great steve kerr moments uh he there's a knock on the door uh, he had already told the reporters what room he's in come on by and see me. He knew that two guys had come from all the way from Tucson to go to Europe to cover this, because that's how big a deal it was in Arizona with Lou Dolson as the coach and Sean Elliott and Steve Kerr on the team. He sees them on the bus and said, I know you need to talk to me. Come to my room. (laughs) It's one of the (laughs) best nights of my life, but sure come to my room. And so one of the guys is in the room is Steve is on the phone with his mom in tears talking about how his career is probably over. And, In the strange twist that becomes sort of one of the Steve Kerr trademarks, uh, this horrible moment turns into one of the best things to ever happen to him because he redshirts what would have been his senior year, comes back a year later, and the team is much better. Sean Elliott is a year older, and he's a machine he's just a dominant force uh the wildcats are much better steve is a year older and he's stronger his legs are in better shape than ever because he had focused on those in the rehab uh the opposite of a setback it made him a better shooter because it forced him to uh, to develop his legs the three-point shot was in place by that season and he ends up being one of the best players on the best team in the country and turning into an nba draft pick And the case can be made that none of that would have happened if he didn't blow his knee out.
2: I will say this, and it it dates me a little bit age wise, but one of my favorite chants ever, and one of the, I think, just one of those classic college basketball moments, is the Steve Kerr chant in Tucson when he would hit threes. It's
0: it's great. It's fantastic.
2: And I don't know if there, I I didn't even look before I spoke to you if there's YouTube clips of this out there or um, not. But I mean, if as I remember it, the announcer would would you know three pointer whatever Steve Kerr and the whole crowd would yell Steve Kerr. It was amazing.
0: It became one of the great traditions in college basketball because it would sort of get drawn out a little bit. And as a matter of fact, I, I the title of one of the chapters yeah. is Steve Kerr because the PA guy would say it and then it started off as the band kind of doing it a little bit and then it became the entire arena doing it and now it, it's 2021 and he could show up back at McHale Center or probably almost anywhere in Tucson and he is going to hear that. He... he Return to Tucson to give the commencement address uh, after he retired from the NBA. And you know what he heard Steve Kerr. And that is something that has stayed with him. And it's awesome. It's just one of those great atmosphere, uh, one of those great settings of
2: college sports. So he, he gets drafted 50th. And, and you mentioned this before. He didn't think he was going to stick in the nba you know and and statistically by the way 50th picks don't stick in the nba (laughs) once you get to the middle of the second round it's it's where you know yeah there's the man of Ginobili's and what have you it's the and steve kerr they are the exceptions to the rule most of these guys never even touched the court what kind of mindset what did he bring that what did he realize he needed to do to stick
0: to be professional. And there, there's always been a maturity about him, even when he was in high school. I talked to some of his high school teachers and classmates and people who knew him back then. And this was not your typical 15, 16, 17-year-old. Uh, and a lot of that is his, his parents' upbringing and having lived in different places around the world. He spent a lot of time growing up in the Middle East. So he understood that the world did not revolve around steve kerr and his cool clothes or what car he had so there's always been that professionalism and he understood that he couldn't show up and be a jerk anywhere because he didn't have he didn't have that much room but that much rope but the other thing about him and this has always been the case is his mantra was to always be prepared and it's corny but it really is so true with him and and we talked about it before that big moment with michael jordan uh, in the 97 finals, that's because Steve was prepared, that he would do all the fun stuff uh, at practices like shooting games and goofing around with teammates and things like that, but only after he had put the work in. He may not have played for two weeks in a row, but he's not only out there getting an extra shooting, he's taking the shots that he would have an opportunity to take during the games. You know, when you see a lot of guys out there during pregame warm-ups or after practices, and they're trying their half-court hook shots or, or these, these goofy, uh, you know, pass off the, off the backboard to themselves kind of thing. Steve was 20-footer from the left side, 18-footer from the right side, free throws, everything that you would think that he would get during the games. Preparation was a huge part of it, of his mindset, and that's a huge reason he stuck around.
2: He gets drafted to Phoenix, and and I think when we talk about the Steve, the influences on Steve Kerr as a coach, we always talk about Lute Olson at at Arizona and obviously Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich. He spent a year under uh, legendary coach Cotton Fitzsimmons in Phoenix on a, a, what was a team that made the Western Conference Finals in Phoenix. Uh, He was barely playing, but uh, uh, Kerr is on that team. Uh, and you talk in the book, he took stuff away from Cotton.
0: He loved Cotton. He only had one year with him, <clears throat> but you're right. All the attention goes to Phil and to Pop and to Lute. Uh, Cotton had a large influence on him, uh, largely about the personality of how to be a successful coach because Cotton was so well-liked. And it's not just because uh, he he knew how to coach. That team won. Uh, he put guys in the right situation. So he had... He understood that it was much more than an X's and O's situation. You know, Lute was a genius, and Steve could not have been in a better college situation. But he did not have this big personality. And as soon as he got to the NBA, he got with Cotton, who did have this big personality. And Steve took from that a lot of what it takes in terms of atmosphere and the mood you want to set uh, to keep your players loose, to make sure you're having fun during this long, long season or some five game road trip through snowy conditions or something that there's, you gotta have fun. You gotta connect with people. It was a lot about personality. Uh, and then another guy from there, he goes to, uh, to Cleveland. And again, Lenny Wilkins is not mentioned a lot in the Steve Kerr story arc, but again, a different personality, uh, than Cotton much more of the, the Lute Olsen type where he's smart and, but he's understated. Lenny is, does not have that big personality, but he's respected like few others. Um, and Lenny had a profound impact on him as well.
2: Um, he obviously, you know, like you said, he ends up with the bulls and that becomes, and then eventually the Spurs and that becomes legendary. He comes out of the NBA after 15 years. And I don't, get the impression he thought he was going to be a coach. That was not kind of where he pictured his career heading. In fact, he was broadcasting.
0: Yeah, I think for a long time he thought, I'm going to, I'm going to be the, one of the guys who succeeds Lute. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not eventually. I, I think he loved the college game so much and sort of how it felt and everything. And sort of for had thought, I can see coaching in my future, but not for a long time. Uh, he had spent. He had, had three kids. Uh, he had a wonderful family situation when he was growing up and wanted to provide the same thing for his family. He had, as I said, met his wife when he was in college and had his three kids, and he didn't want to be away constantly as he knew he would have to be. He had done that as a player and didn't want to go into that as a coach. And there were people that had interest in him Uh, as a coach right away it's amazing how his life had changed because the guy that couldn't beg a college scholarship couldn't (laughs) almost couldn't beg an nba being drafted by the nba by the time he leaves the nba uh within a couple years there's people that are interested in him as a coach and or as a general manager and it's pretty remarkable, but he, he held it off. He was adamant about it. He said, I'm not going to get into a situation where I'm going to be gone from my family on uh, all those long road trips all the time. So he understood what it took to be a good coach, and he didn't want to – he was honest with himself. He said, I don't want to put in that time right now. And so he he kind of took a job in the NBA Barker Lounge, he became a broadcaster.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh- he eventually does become a GM, and I think that that's one of the other interesting parts of the book. You don't really pull punches. He was he struggled in that role. And you know, for people who don't remember, he was coming in closer to the end of the seven seconds or less era. They'd had some success. They hadn't been able, able to get over the hump. Kerr is the guy who brought in Shaquille O'Neal, which I think a lot of us at the time went, Really? Uh, you're doing what? But he struggled in that role, and you don't really pull a lot of punches there.
0: It was a difficult role for him. Uh, It's not one he really wanted. I think he felt guilted into it uh, by the owner. He had been uh, Robert Sarver bought the team after Steve Kerr gave Sarver an introduction to David Stern and that sort of set the wheels in motion of Sarver eventually buying the team and Sarver in an act of gratitude basically gifted Steve Kerr i think it was 1% or 1.5% of the team as sort of a as sort of a thank you and makes him an advisor or gives him some nifty title about special assistant to the owner or something like that uh, but Steve really isn't doing much in the basketball side he's at that point he's sort of vice president of shaking hands or yeah. making an appearance in Tucson if they're trying to promote an exhibition game down there or something. Uh, didn't want to do it. Basically got guilted into it because Sarver had given him uh, free money of, of the ownership share and ends up doing it and liked some parts, but really reminded him most of all on why he wanted to be a coach. That The coach here you're, you're in that huddle And Steve wants to be in the huddle, in the locker room, on the bus, bantering with guys after a practice or in the locker room celebrating after a two-point win on the road or something. And as a GM, you're spending so much time in Iowa City and Tuscaloosa at College Station and all these places doing scouting, and you're not around the team that much. And even even when you're in Phoenix and the Suns are in Phoenix, you're up in your office talking to cranky agents and talking to other GMs trying to make trades. And so there was always to Steve that even though he was a member of the Suns, he wasn't a member of the Suns the way he wanted to be. And it it was not a good fit, and that's something that he came to admit.
2: So he eventually takes the job with the Warriors. Um, There was a lot of... uh, There was a lot of controversy around that, even within the team. Remember, for people who don't remember... uh, Mark Jackson had been the coach, and by the way, did a pretty good job. Like, got them to play defense, something Kerr credited them with later. I mean, there were, and I don't know if we want to go down that road, there were real concerns between ownership and and Mark Jackson on on a number of fronts, and uh, it gets misrepresented at times. But Steve didn't step into it. He had to step into a situation where he had to win the team over because they liked Mark Jackson.
0: Well who liked Mark Jackson more than anybody, Stephen Curry. And yeah. So talk about having to win over the team. He had to win over the franchise. Yeah. Um, you're right on everything you said. Uh, there were th- The issue between Mark Jackson and management uh, was a little bit X's and O's. They wanted to see more ball movement. But it was primarily the biggest factor was a personality issue. There yeah. was this, this great canyon between Mark Jackson and his bosses and the Warriors felt they had to resolve that. At the same time, he did a good job. Uh, that that was quickly forgotten because Steve came in and did a better job. And obviously, uh, it was the right decision to bring Steve Kerr in. Now we, we can say that easily when when we see how things turned out. But Mark did a good job, and it was controversial. They were. Yeah. Uh, he, he had the locker room. Uh, he had 50 wins. He had them in the playoffs. He had them in a game seven on the road despite being injured in the first round in the playoffs and still got fired. And Steve realizes this and he shows up. And one of the first thing he says publicly and to the players is look, Mark Jackson has done a great job here. Look what he's left me. You players, you've done a great job. Look where we're starting at. Uh, I owe a lot to what's already in place here. And, and that showed people a lot and his, his lack of ego uh, his willing, willingness to spread the credit, uh, again, it, it clearly was not just a suck-up move to Stephen Curry because for a long time he talked about how much the defense had improved under Mark Jackson and, and how some of the young players like Steph and Clay had developed under Mark Jackson. So, again, appreciative. He understood that he had walked in to a much better situation than any first-time head coach had a right to walk into.
2: The other thing is that I don't think people I mean I know he people realize he had back pain and that he actually missed time and and there was you know all sorts of treatments and surgeries and stuff. I don't think people realized how bad it was. Like how close he came to saying I can't do this.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things we get into in the book that that hasn't been talked about really before. Yeah. He was starting to have the conversation with himself and the people closest to him, not publicly, but behind the scenes. Um, as this this attempted recovery is going on for weeks and months and he's still got the dizziness and the headaches and the nausea. Uh, he's able to walk for a few steps and then he's got to reach out to put his arm uh, on, onto a chair or against a wall so he could get his balance. What started out as a back problem turned into something much worse because the surgery to fix the back problem led to a uh, spinal fluid leak into his body and that caused him a measurable pain and discomfort and he was having to say I, there's a good chance I can't make it back and this was a dream job for him uh, he loved everything about the team he loved that it was close to San Diego where his family's permanent base uh, st- still remained uh, there were there were so many positives, the team had a big window because Steph and Clay and Draymond were young there were so many positives and he's having to to sort of say, I don't know that I can come back. And uh, that's one of those big moments in his life uh, where we talked about needing basketball. Uh, that's part of it. He didn't, uh, he got healthy because of basketball. There's no question that that was one of the motivating factors for him is he needed to get back to basketball so he could get back to a normal life.
2: I gotta think, and I know you haven't spent a ton of time looking at, looking forward because you've been so engrossed in this book for for a year. I gotta think that he sees this coming season after the the mess of the last couple of years and the challenges of COVID and all the injuries this team has gone through. With he's got to be excited about the potential, right? Like this is the kind of situation as a coach where you can you feel like you can make a difference and start to bring this team back to. If not where it was, certainly a much more competitive space.
0: Yeah, he's had two years of having to uh, keep the car in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, obviously, uh, Clay Thompson has a lot to prove in terms of is he going to last until spring, maybe even into June. Uh, but so we can't really speak to the injuries uh, because. But we do know that Clay is going to put in whatever work is necessary to get healthy. But if he holds up, I think all Steve Kerr and Steph and Bob Myers and everybody there wants is this one last shot that you just you just hate as much as they're they're appreciative of, of all the success they've had so far. Uh, you know what? Just beat us don't have us beat ourselves with injury we want to get eliminated if we're going to lose we don't want it to be a what if so i think they're hoping that this year in particular and maybe even maybe even next year because uh guys are getting older but uh, as steph showed us last year getting older is much different from over the hill uh that he's saying let's get this one last push and i think he's very excited about this, this situation, that there's a lot to prove to people, and he thrives in that situation. The guy that couldn't get a scholarship offer, the guy that was not the number 50 pick in the draft, uh, is now back in that same situation, uh, just with a bigger name.
2: The book, Steve Curl Life, is an absolutely fantastic read. Highly recommended. Uh, you know, this is one of those things for, if you've got uh, basketball friends and family in your life, you know you can check it off the Christmas list early, man. Those of us, those of us who wait till the twenty third, don't always get the best gifts. And I am in the middle of that grouping. Um, but here's your opportunity. It is everywhere. You can get it on Amazon, uh, all your favorite bookstores, or might I recommend um, try to help out an independent bookstore. They've been hit so hard during the pandemic. Um, go to, even if you end up ordering it through them, uh, try to go in and help out these local bookstores. Or if you're ordering online, go through Powell's up in, in, or some of the other independents. Um, not that Jeff Bezos doesn't need more of your money for his rocket ships, but you know, there are (laughs) independent bookstores out there, uh, that they could use the help. I, I I hope you, I I think, you know, I think there's going to be a little more talk about this book as, as, as you move into a season with Steve Kerr a little more in the spotlight.
0: Well, I hope so. That's certainly uh, that's certainly um, one of the one of the hopes that we have. It came at at an awkward time after the Warriors had been eliminated, but that's just the schedule that the COVID circumstances had forced on us for various reasons. So now as the enthusiasm returns and and maybe the warriors get back to being the warriors that look a little bit more familiar. Uh, that would be great. If people want to, if people want to get into the spirit and and find out about a a pretty amazing life, uh, that would be great. I love what you said about supporting the independent bookstores and uh, I second it.
2: Yeah. I, um, we, we were up with uh, my daughter this summer in uh, Oregon. I have a, a daughter who's now a senior in high school. So we were looking at colleges up that way. Um, uh, she was very excited suddenly about Reed. I'm like, oh, well, it's hard to get into an expensive, so great, that'll go well. But um, we also, t- well, you know, we were in Portland. We toured the University of Oregon and Oregon State, and and she's applying to some school, other schools up there too. Um, but we spent more money at Powell's than I think any one <laughs> singular place on that whole trip. We, I'm like, good. Not only that, we're we're all going to be over fifty pounds with our bags on the way back because now we've got to add. Yeah, we we brought so many books back. Some yes, uh, it's, it, it's, do try to help out the independents. Scott, thank you for doing this, man. And it was it's good catching up with you.
0: Uh, I've enjoyed your conversation and uh, appreciate it. It was a fun talk, but most of all, I'm, I'm so appreciative of your friendship through the years. I've learned a lot from you. One of the one of the smart political, one of the smart uh, NBA minds out there so this has been great i had a lot of fun and thanks for
2: everything i look forward to scott hopefully uh, we'll be able to see each other on the road again soon and uh i i, I know some places um that serve beer i, I will be happy to. <laughs> i'll buy you one buddy I, i'd love to see you again
0: i look forward to it
2: all right thank you everybody for listening we will be back uh, later this week with another pro basketball talk podcast here at nbc sports
1: listening to your favorite podcast that's smart